Welcome, everyone, to The Eight. This is a really kind of a one-off, I think, uh, but it's just something I felt very passionate about I wanted to kind of share, especially where we are in the year right now, and I'll, I'll, that will make sense in a second. I have always found a fascination of what did these Jewish men 2,000 years ago who encountered Jesus from a city called Nazareth, they saw him die, they saw him rose, I'm always fascinated of how they transitioned from their old way of thinking to this new worldview. I'm always fascinated of what did they do, especially after they experienced Jesus rising from the dead. I've always been fascinated as far as how did that change their life? How did that change their marriage for those of the, who are married? How did it change how they looked at hardships and struggles? How did it change everything for them after they encountered Jesus. I'm always fascinated as far as what happened, because for those who are familiar with the Bible or, or know the story of Jesus, okay, it kind of ends with Easter and we kind of celebrate it, but what happens after that? Like, th that's the part that always fascinates me, that intrigues me, because the Christian worldview has impacted every aspect of world culture. It has impacted every aspect of the human experience and of the world for better or for worse, but it has impacted. But I always like to go back and look at those first few decades to see how did those original Jewish followers, what did they do the following Sunday? How did they feel as they're still processing what happened the other week as far as Jesus dying, especially when they look back at what happened at that, that meal on Thursday night, and then Jesus dying and then rise from the dead, and, and then they had breakfast with him on the beach after he rose from the dead. So they're seeing this glorified body and they're having, you know, breakfast with him. So I'm always curious, how did they process and how did they cope with all of that moving forward? One thing is for sure, there was tons of excitement. They were in the process of processing everything, but there was also fear because many people around them viewed them as being a cult. They were Jewish men, ended up following Jesus, and many people would, would just, you know, write them off as being cultish. And, and just say, okay, they're just a weird deviation of Judaism. We know it to be the way, the truth, Christianity. But then there was a lot of fear embedded within them because people were hunting for them as well. So there's tons of different emotions, a lot of different things going on, especially when you look at the first few decades of Christianity. At the same time, the Christian worldview was beginning to touch different areas around the world, specifically around the Mediterranean Rim. And you're beginning to see the, the fullness of Christianity touching different areas. If you look at the first few decades, you see St. Paul, who was a Jewish terrorist, ended up becoming a, a Jesus follower, and how he touched different aspects of, of different cities and countries around the Mediterranean area. Also, one of those followers of Jesus goes by the name of St. Mark. He's an apostle, a young man. He was originally from Libya, but after the resurrection of Jesus, he was appointed on a mission to bring Christianity to a land called Egypt. He's not Egyptian. He, he was going into a foreign worldview, a foreign country, a foreign language, and he's trying to bring the reality and the fullness of, of Jesus and his church there. So all this is happening at 40 AD, 50 AD, 60 AD. I want to share with you one letter in which St. Paul, the missionary, the apostle, he wrote to the, to the city of Thessalonica. For those who know uh, geography, what country is Thessalonica in? 
Greece. Very good. Very good. So in Greece, he's writing a letter to 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 the to, to Thessalonica, to the Thessalonians there, and he writes this letter. And this is what he tells them. So then, brothers and sisters, he's talking to the people in Greece here, right? This is St. Paul writing. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So he empowers them. St. Paul's writing to these Jesus followers who are establishing the church in Greece and telling them, hold, hold firm. Hold firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. He's saying, hold on to what I've taught you, either something you've received in a, in a letter and in this big scroll and you open it up, or something that's been said by mouth. Hold on to this. Let me ask a, a question, and you give me your silly response back. Was St. Paul writing in English? No. So when we are reading anything in English, it's a translation. Because, and, and for those who know multiple languages, not me, but for those who do know multiple languages, you understand things can get lost in translation. Things get lost in translation. So reread this. This is one version of a translation into English. I want to share with you and highlight one specific word. The word is teachings. This specific translation of this specific letter that St. Paul specifically wrote to the city of Thessalonica in Greece. This translation says, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings. Okay, just as you would do, for the, you, you, you're smart, you critically analyze aspects of life, you want to look further into like the origin of something, you want to dissect something. Okay, so what will we do if we want to find the true emotion and spirit and intent of what St. Paul's writing? Let's look at the original language of why St. Paul's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. So let's go back to the Greek. So if we look at the Greek word here, the Greek word is, is paradosis, which is tradition. If you can imagine, there is a large group of Christianity that even the word tradition, let's be honest, maybe some of us, the word tradition, bleh. It just, it, it, it has a bad reflex within us, right? Oh, he's so traditional. They're so traditional. They need to get with the ages, right? It, it just, it, it just rubs us the wrong way. Maybe it's not a nasty word, but it just, it has a negative connotation. The word tradition, right? It just seems outdated. It seems like it needs to get with the times. So you can understand how there is this subconscious motive to, to translate, to retranslate what St. Paul's saying and omit the word the Greek word paradosis, remove that word, which means tradition, and replace it with teaching, teaching, teaching. So I, I, I want to get to a point here. If we capture the spirit of what St. Paul's writing to these early Jesus followers, if we're trying to get to the bottom of what St. Paul is telling you and me, he tells them this. Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the tradition we passed on to you. This tradition is maybe something you have in writing or maybe something that was said Orally. Here's my point, just in case you, you leave or you zone out. The essence and bedrock of the fullness of Christianity is what has been passed down from generation to generation. The essence of ancient Christianity, the fullness of Christianity, is what has been passed down from Jesus to the 12 disciples to the apostles. This beautiful continuity is the church. I don't want to get into history of how there is different reformers and dilution and deviations from all of that. 
But at least if we just, this is 55 AD. The same time St. Paul's writing this, St. Mark is already in Egypt trying to speak their language, trying to acclimate to their culture, and trying to bring the fullness of the church there. At the exact same time, a few hundred miles away, St. Paul is also telling them, hold on to the tradition. Hold on to the tradition. And just stick with me. For those who, like, you hear the word tradition and you naturally shut off, like, Ugh, you know, just stick with me on that before we get any further. So what we see already if we're capturing the spirit of what St. Paul is saying, there is already this rich, live, dynamic spirit that exists in the church. For St. Paul is telling them, hold on to the tradition. Either you have in writing and text or something that has been passed down from the apostles. Hold on to that. That is the life of the church. That is nourishment. This is the church. So hold on to all of that for that to be food for your soul, for your edification, for your salvation. So St. Paul is already giving that. So we're getting a glimpse that this is the life of the church. Do you think the expression of Christianity in Greece is very different than what's happening in Rome, is very different than what's happening in Algeria, is very different than what's happening in Egypt, is different, very different than what's happening in Ethiopia? 100%. The expression of it has, is, is, is diverse, but the fullness and the essence of it is the same. My cheesy, silly example, ice cream is ice cream, but you might have different flavors. Right? You might have vanilla in one place, you might have chocolate in another, you have coffee flavor in another, but the essence of it is still the same. So we, if we're capturing what St. Paul is saying and we understand the, the historical context, if we understand the cultural context, he's telling them, hold on to the tradition. Either something you have in writing, which later becomes the Bible, or something that has been passed down. He makes them both equal. He makes them both equal. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four main writings we have of Jesus' life, which we know as being the gospel. And this is a Coptic icon, uh, icon of Jesus with St. John. You know, always, you know, if you notice the way St. John writes, he always says, oh, you know, the disciple Jesus loved, right? He's always talking about himself, so he's always kind of leaning in toward Jesus. So this icon is, is showing uh, St. John with Jesus. So he writes his record of Jesus' life from a very first eyewitness account. Near the end of his writing, right, he's trying to write down all the essentials to show people the revelation of God in flesh. That's, I mean, that, that's what convicted St. John to write down everything he encountered. Every meal, every, everything he saw with his own two eyeballs with Jesus, he's writing all of that down. And we know it today as being the gospel according to St. John. But to him, he's just writing everything he encountered, you know, in the prime of his life. And when he was a lot younger, he's writing all this down near the end of his life. He's looking back and writing down everything he encountered. But he's trying to capture the fundamentals, the essence of who Jesus Christ is. Him being the light. Him being God in flesh. He's trying to articulate that. He's using Greek philosophy. He's doing his best to try to capture this divine reality. But near the end of his writing, at the, and if you look at the end of, of the Gospel of St. John, I want to highlight some, some really fascinating things that St. John says near the end. He says this, And truly Jesus, he did so many other signs in the presence of his disciples, including me, John, which are not written in this book. St. John's saying, Jesus did so many other things, but, you know, Either he's running out of ink, or maybe he's getting too old, or his eyesight is accusing. He says, I, I can't even write it down in the book. There's so many other things which Jesus did. But don't get me wrong. Everything I have already written in these past 19 chapters, even though he's not writing in chapter format, everything else I've written so far is giving you the fundamentals of, of embracing the reality of heaven coming down to earth. 
He kind of says the same thing just a few paragraphs later. This is the last verse. This is the last passage of the Gospel of John. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. How beautiful is that? He ends this record of Jesus' life. He's saying, even if I had all the books in the world, I don't think I'll, be, I don't think I'll have enough paper, I don't think I'll have enough ink to write down everything I experienced with Jesus, my Savior. But look back, everything else I've written will give you the way to life. This gives us a glimpse, my friend, of the non-attractive word called tradition, and it also pairs it up with Scripture. The fullness and essence of orthodoxy is complementing both together, tradition and Scripture together. I apologize if this um, like touches us, uh, you know, tugs on some strings in our heart. We know people who have been hurt by the church. You might have family members, coworkers, friends who have been hurt by the church. Maybe you and I have experienced hurt in the church. And many of the times, it's extremely valid. When I hear these stories, honestly, genuinely, I say, if I experienced what you experienced, I wouldn't, I, I would be hard for me to go back to church too. Like, I hear what you're saying. I get it. Please hear me out on this. Our passive reflex is to connect church being the people. Our natural reflex is to connect, oh, those are church people, so this means this is the church, which I totally get. But what I want to talk about, I want to talk about something that transcends that limit. I want to talk about the reality, a divine reality, which surpasses that limit. Because the fullness of the church exists of people who are lustful, egotistical, prideful, broken, selfish people. I think I said selfish twice, but you know what I'm saying. This is what the church consists of. Sick people. I mean, with all respect to you, but how about myself? It exists of people like myself. How about that? That way you're not offended, right? There are sinful, maybe you don't want to use the word sinful. There are people who are broken in the church, including yours truly. But this is not the church. The church is not someone wearing a black dress like me. The church is not people, uh, it, it, it's not people. What we're talking about, if I take the words of St. John Chrysostom, a fourth century bishop, the church is a hospital. So it will always exist of broken people. So I totally get the reflex of when we say, well, I'm, you know, I'm hurt because of that person, what he said and how she judged me in the church because of a priest. I get all that. The reality is, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. And let me also say this. You and I will continue to be broken by people in the church until our last breath. That's not going anywhere. Do you know why that's not going anywhere? Because the devil's not going anywhere until the age to come. So we will always be hurt. We will always feel betrayed. We will always feel denied. We will always be hurt. That's not going anywhere. But I don't want us to look at church at a hundredfold level. I want us to understand, as we'll get to in a little bit, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of God. This dynamic organism is what I want us to understand being the capital C church. This is what I want us to understand. 
There used to be a, an evangelical pastor. He passed away uh, by the name of uh, Peter Gilquist. He went on this journey of, um, he kind of paused as, as a pastor himself. He paused to be like, is this the church? He, as a pastor, he's, he's like, is, is, is this the first century church? So he called time out. He took a sabbatical. And he went on a, and he did some research. Him and a group, actually, a group of his friends went on, on a, did some research to find out what is the first century church. Anyway, he ended up uh, converting to orthodoxy, and he became a priest in the orthodox church, kind of similar to the video we saw earlier. And he wrote a book called Journey to Orthodoxy. He wrote a book called Journey to Orthodoxy. And he talks about his journey of going from an evangelical pastor to um, an orthodox priest and, and how he em embraced the fullness of the church. But he says this beautiful passage in the book that, that's always touched me. He says, for those who say, that's why I stopped going to church, because he hurt me, she hurt me, they hurt me, they, like, they, like, whatever, they talk about behind my back, so forth and so on. That, that they're, they're selfish, they're judgmental, that's why I left the church. That's why I don't go to, that's why I don't go to church anymore. Father Peter, Father Peter says in the book, he tells people who say that, if you find a church in which there are perfect people, if you find a church in which everyone is so loving and perfect and nobody has any flaws and no one judges you and, and you're just always welcome and accepted. If you find a church like that, you don't go in it yourself because the second you go into that church, you're going to ruin up that perfection. <laughs> he says, that, that's not my words, that's Father Peter's. He said, you don't go to that church because once you go in, you screwed it up because you're screwed up and you're going to mess up that perfect church. What I want to say is this. We will, and I'm repeating myself because I'm telling you. This, this, this pulls on strings within us personally or people in our family. We will always be hurt by people in the church. But what are people in the church? Continue that thought. Continue that sentence. People in the church are also sick, broken people like you and me. This, and we're not here at a country club. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. I went to church. That's not what we're here. We're here to find the remedy to life which is found in the source of life. I want to share with you a dialogue, a conversation which Jesus had with his disciples. St. Matthew gives us some details, ge geographically speaking. When Jesus came into the region of Sistri Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man am. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I have a one Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus is asking them, hey, what's the, what's the word around town? What are people saying about me? What are they saying? Like, what are, what are people saying outside, right? So Jesus is kind of throwing out this question to his disciples. What are people saying? So they said, hey, Jesus, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah that came back from heaven. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? So they're, they're basically saying, you know, Jesus, some people think you're, you're you come back, you're John, saying John reincarnated. Some people think you're Elijah coming back from heaven. Like, some people think you're just like one of the prophets that's, you're just a good dude. He said to them, Jesus said to them, okay, cool, that's what they're saying. But who do you say that I am? He points now the question to the inner person of them 12. Who do you say that I am? For you and me, especially those who are familiar with Christianity and that's a part of your life, is your answer to this question just your classic go-to Sunday school answer? Can you answer, why, why are you here on a Sunday? Why do you commit your life to leaning in toward Jesus? Why do you anchor yourself to him? 
Why is the life of the church embedded into your, into your is it just out of habit? Is it to suppress guilt? Is it because of family pressures? Is it, what's the reason? We need to break and, and break down this question. Why, why Christianity is so attractive, why Jesus is so attractive. He gave so much honor and respect to everyone who was coming and leaning in toward him. He told them, come and see. He told Philip, hey, come and see. He told, uh, he told other disciples, come and see. He's honoring and respecting them. Your heavenly father honors and respects and loves you. But I want you to question. I want you to question why you're here. Why do you pursue Jesus? Is it an external factor? Is it just out of habit? Because we're creatures of habit? Or is it because it's connected to your ultimate identity and worth? Continue on the conversation. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And in classic St. Peter fashion, you know, he's, he's the one that always speaks up first. You know, so he, what did he say? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? You know, St. Peter gives the right Sunday school answer, right? Jesus answered and said to him, happy are you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, give him his full name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus tells him, you're smart, Peter, but you're not that smart. This wasn't just something like you just said on the top of your, it just came out. This was revealed to you from heaven, the reality of what you just said. And I also say that, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock being the statement in which St. Peter just said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, that statement that you said, that I am the son of the living God, I am heaven that came down to earth, I am God in flesh, that statement, this will be the foundation of this eternal body, this hospital that will bring, that will bring nourishment and edification and the remedy to the brokenness of humanity until the age to come. This will be the church, and nothing will be able to, 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 to prevail over it. Hades itself, the power, the prince of this world, Satan, will not be able to crush the power of the capital C church. Like I mentioned before, looking at St. Paul's words, Jesus, Jesus and St. Peter are not having a conversation in English. They're speaking a different language. So what is the word, when we say the word church, our mind naturally goes to church being well, for those who are part of St. Mark Church, we don't know what a church is because we've been renting around everywhere. But we, uh, maybe this has been to our benefit, honestly, that we understand church is not being before. Uh, we, we pray to uh, dance studios, to hotels, to the synagogue. So we, uh, to we understand, we have a better understanding that the church is not the four walls. We understand that. But if you take the etymology and you look at the word church, I can't remember if I have this. I don't have it. The word church in Greek means ekklesia. Go further. What's the etymology of the Greek word ekklesia? That means you are called out of. You are called out of. So, the church, so Jesus is saying, I'm, the, the, my church, I'm calling you, I'm calling that statement you just said of me being the son of the living God, this, I'm calling this out from the brokenness and distortion and sin that exists in the world. God has called you from outside of the perversion that exists in this world and has called you to be part of the capital C church that we're called to come out of the, 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 the brokenness and selfishness and lust that exists in this world. And you and I are called to be part of the church. We're called out of from this world and part of something so much bigger. We all have this struggle of compartmentalizing our life. 
There's the church version of me, and then there's the Friday night version of me. There is the, um, this is my church friends, and these are my work friends. And the jokes I say with my church friends are completely different than the jokes I say with my work friends, right? And we, we have this temptation. My in-person version is different than my online version, right? So we, we, we have this temptation of living this double life. So it is understandably, it's understandable because of our weakness, that we say, this is church, right? Uh, I was... I did a lot of bad things Friday night. I think I'm like probably negative three points in God's, you know, rule book or something. So let me come to church. Let me come early. And let me take a little communion. And I'll stay for the eight. Maybe I'll be plus three. Maybe I'll be plus four. That'll be awesome. Right? And we think about it that way. We play this point system with God because we try to take the eternity in the incomprehensibility of God. I don't know if that's a word. We take that and we try to apply it into our logic. And we try to think that God thinks the way we think. And we use this point system just so we can suppress any guilt or shame. I say all that because St. Paul writes a letter to the city of Corinth. And Corinth is a city in the country of Greece, isn't it? Yeah, Greece. Yeah. You guys make a second guess myself. So he's writing to the city of Corinth. And, and what's happening in Corinth right now is the epitome of a very liberal view to sexuality. A very liberal view to sexuality. Kind of what's happening now, but, you know, that's okay. That's a different series, probably, not a talk. It's a different series. But St. Paul is trying to talk to them and trying to remind them of who they are. St. Paul is writing to the city of Corinth, to the Corinthians, to remind them of who they are. So he throws out a couple questions to them. He tells them this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, don't you know that you are not your own? And I am sure the people of, of Corinth are reading that like, what do you mean? I make my own shots. No one is above me. I'm my, I'm, I'm my own boss. I, I do what I want to do. I, do what, I, I follow my truth. I do what I want to do. Right? I'm sure they read that. They closed that scroll, and they said, I do what I want to do. And St. Paul's just throwing questions for them to think. Do you not know that you are the residing place of God don't you know you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you, you don't control your, your own life? Don't you know that everything, everything, everything is in the palm of your Father's hand? Don't you know that? He's just throwing out questions to them. Because just in our reflex, just in our passivity, we feel like I can control things. And that's what induces many of our anxiety, is that we realize we cannot control. And we try to. We try to manage our time. We try to manage our schedule. We try to minimize the risks because we feel it's in our hands. And St. Paul is just throwing questions for them to think. Do you not know that you are the intersection of God? Don't you know you're the dwelling place? Don't you know who you belong to? If St. Paul is saying that we are the dwelling place of God, his church is also the dwelling place of God because his church consists of you and me. Him being the head, of course, as St. Paul also talks about somewhere else, but the dwelling place of God, the church, is not four walls. You already know that. It is this dynamic organism, which brings me to my last point. My last two points. I want you to embrace the reality that you are part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of God. This full lengthy thing that I just said 
is the official language of Orthodox Church, of the Orthodox Church. The word Orthodox came later on as there was different deviations of the church. So the church says, hold up, they're saying they're the church, we're also saying we're the church, we need to, so we, th that language came later. But the original language that you see in the early manuscripts of the first few centuries is the church is being called actually the Catholic Church for short. But again, that word has also been hijacked, right? So, but if you look at the etymology of the word Catholic, it means it's all-encompassing, or it's the universal church. So again, go back to 55 AD. St. Paul's writing this letter to Thessalonica. St. Mark is already doing his thing in, in, uh, in Egypt. St. Thomas is already in India. Everyone's doing their thing. But it's all part of the Catholic Church. The essence and fullness of Christianity and Jesus and his church is one. But the expression of it is varying as they are going to different parts. But I want you to understand that you are part of this huge, huge body called the one. Because there's no deviation, there's no division. It is one. The Orthodox Church, the fullness of ancient Christianity, is one. It is one. It is holy. It's not a, a corporation. It's not a social club. It's not a, a whatever. It is divine. Like the word holy, again, not to go all Greek today, but the word holy means it's not of this world. It's not of this earth. It is, it is heaven. Like what you and I are part of is eternal. So it's one. It's holy. It is Catholic. There is no separation. It's not limited by time. We are part of the same church in which St. Paul and, and St. Mark are a part of. It's the same church of, of the saints and the martyrs. And it's the same church that will exist after us. We're, we're all part of that same oneness, that unity. So we're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Apostolic, which is coming from the word apostolos, means it's a messenger. It's a continuity of the church. So the apostolic church means we're continuing what the apostles had. Go back to the Greek word for tradition. The word, Greek word for tradition is paradosis, means something that is passed down. So when we say we're the apostolic church, there is a legit concrete continuity from where we are right now in 2024 going all the way back to 33 AD. And we're not saying this in theory. We're not saying it like in a cute way. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. We're apostolic. No. Like on paper, you can look at where, where we are as a church and you can thread it all the way back to those 12 disciples or look at the 70 apostles. This is the fullness of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Another term to describe the apostolic church is being a theanthropic organism. Let me, before I lose you on this. The prefix theo means God. Anthropos or anthropology is the study of man or humanity. Yeah, so, so th when we say the church is a theanthropic organism, the church, which is lively and dynamic and timeless and eternal, it is the intersection of God and man. So the church is theanthropic, the essence of the church. God and man, anthropos. But the reality of anthropos, of man, is we are broken. But when we connect to theos, to God, this organism, this is where we find edification. This is where we find life. This is where we find the medicine and salvation, which is found in the Holy Trinity. So you are part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And my last point. Be engaged in the life of the church. I'm intentionally not saying go to church. That's not the goal. Because someone can go to church until their last breath, but they're just, you know, having a seat 
and just going through the motions, but they have not invited the reality of God into their life. But, but the fullness, the full spirituality of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church is us to be engaged in the life of the church. It's for us to be engaged in the life of the church. That involves the sacramental life of the church, which we're not going to get into today, but it, it's okay if, if we're not all on the same page. But the services of the church help us connect with God in a very divine, r real way. So for us to be engaged, not coming as a consumer, that, that, that's, not, that, that's not the mentality of, of the ancient church, is what's in it for me? Uh-uh. The, the real posture is, I'm broken, I need medicine. That requires me to connect with others. That requires me to, to be vulnerable and be open and to be engaged in the life of the church, the liturgical life of the church. All right? Also being engaged in the life of the church is through the, the services. Sacramental means all the different services of the church, and liturgical is, is, is a subset of that. Part of that liturgical life is a fast that's beginning tomorrow. A fast or a season the church gives us, the church is wanting to hold our hand and guide us for us to grow, just like for those who go to the gym, for example, like those, not me, when you guys go to the gym and stuff like that, like you, 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 you might have a trainer says, all right, do 10 reps of this and then go on the treadmill here and then whatever, right? They're guiding you through. In the same way, the church guides us. So the church is guiding and says, hey, if you like it or not, there's a season of Lent coming right around the corner. Let's kind of prep before the prep before the prep, so that way we're, we're all ready, you know? So the church gives us the Jonas fast. It's a, it's a, it's a three-day fast the church gives us tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and says, okay, let's focus, and let's not just like say, oh, let's grow spiritually, because you can't grasp that. Let's kind of minimize what we eat. Let's kind of like put away the cheese and the meat and the chicken and the fish. Let's put all that to the side for now, and let's look at the life of the Ninevites. Let's look at the life of Jonah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, let's look at this historical context. Let's look at this narrative to see where we can find life in it ourselves. So I'm saying all this for a no shame plug for us to do this Bible plan together. You can find the specific link on the church website and on the church app. So be engaged in the sacramental and liturgical life of the church. And my last thing is for us to be engaged in life groups. We need to be connected together in groups. Sunday is not enough. Being in rows is not enough. We need to be engaged by attending life groups. You can find the details of what all that is by going to the church website about that, but I encourage all of us to do this. Last thing, I promise. I want to share with you the words of a church father from modern-day Algeria, uh, his name is St. Cyprian of Carthage. He said these words. One can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. What is St. Cyprian saying here? You can't just, you know, you can't just say, I'm going to do God. I stopped going to church because they're all hypocrites. But me and God have our own thing. He's saying, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. You have to have both. The church, as our mother, guides us, sometimes disciplines us for our benefit, out of our love. So I want us to be engaged in the life of the church. I'm sharing all this because of what the church is giving us beginning tomorrow morning and over the next couple of months. Let's be engaged in the life of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen.
Lord, we are so grateful that through all these centuries, you have preserved for us the fullness of your church for our benefit, for our edification, for our salvation. Lord, continue to humble us for us to continue to grow in this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. For those who have been hurt by the church, Lord, touch them for them to know that you are there to heal their brokenness, to heal the wounds that have been caused by our weakness, by our sins. Lord, redeem us and restore us as we are all your children seeking life in you. Through the prayers of your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. I apologize for today being a little bit longer than usual, but, you know, it's okay.